Hello and welcome to this one-off podcast. My name is Joanna Baptista and today we will be exploring the nuts and bolts of the AI revolution and what it will do to our workforce. A 2015 study conducted at the Oxford Martin Institute concluded that 47% of the 702 types of jobs identified by the US Labour Department are vulnerable to automation within the next 20 years. Sectors that carry out predictable jobs in a controlled environment are most at risk, although all jobs contain certain tasks that could be automated. While some believe that this will leave a devastating ethical dilemma in our hands, some argue that this may in fact be beneficial, allowing humans to spend time on complex creative projects. I'll be speaking to Jamie Ladge, Ernest Spicer and Hesse Jones, who are here to help me discover if robots are taking too big a bite out of our workforce. Let's meet them now. Um, so my name is Jamie Ledge. I'm an associate professor of management and organizational development at Northeastern University. Managing human capital is a course that I teach, uh, an elective course that I teach at the undergraduate level, which is essentially a course about human resource management, but we look at it from a more strategic lens of how um, how people are people make the organization what they are. And while many companies are founded on the premise that we should be increasing shareholder value and making money, the premise of my class is really about how to um, value human capital uh, that much more. And we actually look at it from the student perspective as well as the employer perspective. Um, and then on the research side, I do quite a bit of research on um, work family issues. So issues around how people blend um, their work and family lives um, and how to um, basically integrate the two. Okay. My name is Ernest Spicer. I'm CEO of Advanced Nutrition Consulting. We are a healthcare data company in South Carolina and a few other places as well. Uh, we are working on advancements in artificial intelligence, dealing with image technology, dealing with sound technology, dealing with healthcare technology, uh, structured data and unstructured data. So my name is Hesse Jones, and I guess I've been in digital for about um, uh, 18 years. And uh, just got started in artificial intelligence probably about two, two and a half years ago. Uh, prior to that, I, I've actually been a big data person. So I, I, I grew up in, uh, in database marketing and I saw a real opportunity to, to actually start combining the benefits of big data with transactional information. And uh, so in the last two, three years, I've been focusing on understanding people, understanding customers, profiles, relationships, dynamics in those relationships, and and really intent and motivations as it relates to marketing. So I'm embedded in the AI space right now, working for um, Humans for AI. I'm developing my own startup to democratize AI to the masses. And, uh, you know, I look forward to, to talking more about this topic with you. And now the moment you've all been waiting for. Let's ask the questions. First up, Jamie Latch. So the first question is, robots are already beginning to replace certain jobs, but how will artificial intelligence integrate with humans in the workplace? Okay, well, that's a big question, but I think um, from my perspective, you know, I teach in a business school, and I the topic that I teach is really on the softer side of, of, um, of business and trying to understand the importance of interpersonal skills and communication skills. And, you know, I think 
and, and this may, may be a, an answer to some of your other questions as well, but um, I think there's a great opportunity for artificial intelligence and human intelligence to work hand in hand. Um, if you look at what, there's countless studies, very recent ones and of employers, and they're always asking, well, what are the skills that they're looking at the most? What are the most important skills for people that are um, going out on the job market? What are the skills that they need? And while technical skills and analytical skills are important and are the, the basis of what robots and artificial intelligence can provide and probably replace, those are not usually the top things that, that employers are looking for. First and foremost, they'll list things like leadership and written and verbal communication skills and even problem-solving skills, although you could argue that a robot could do that. Um, but some of these kind of what I would call human skills or interpersonal skills far, um, are far listed as far more important um, than some of the technical skills. And I think, you know, one of the debates I often have in my class is, what's the most important skill to have? Is it, is it more important to have the technical skills, the knowledge to be able to do the work? Um, or is it more important to have the communication skills to be able to um, you know, conceive of the work um, and communicate the work to other people and work together with other people? Because teamwork is another, another human skill that um, likely would not be taken over by robots. So um, I think the two go hand in hand. I think there's a real nice complementary nature to human and in, human intelligence and artificial intelligence. But um, I guess I'm maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic that the threat of artificial <laughs> intelligence isn't quite um, as um, I guess as threatening as as we might think it is. But I could be wrong. Okay. I'll stand corrected. <laughs> no, yeah, that's a really interesting input. So you think it will replace them, but we still obviously need all of our skills, so we'll sort of work hand in hand. Well, I think they're I think I don't think they'll necessarily replace humans. I think aspects of work will get replaced. Okay. And you know, we've already seen through the years that automation often affects certain industries. Um, you know, the benefits of, of artificial intelligence and technology more generally is that we can get work done much more um, we can get it done faster in some respects, more efficiently. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about artificial intelligence is a lot of the programs now that get created, especially the algorithms around recruiting individuals that can take the bias um, out of <laughs> that process. Um, so, you know, I mean, one of the big issues that, um, you know, we have, especially in this country where we're a very litigious society, you know, there's a lot of legal ramifications for how you do hiring and, and you have to put in place affirmative action standards and so forth to make sure that you're leveling the playing field. And the one benefit of artificial intelligence is to be able to mitigate some of those issues and to make sure that you're, one, expanding the pot in a more efficient way um, and creating less bias. But, you know, when it comes down to actually selecting the right person for the right job, can a robot do that? I guess it depends. If you're talking about mundane tasks, then yeah, probably. But if you're talking about tasks that, um, you know, most, I would say, service-based jobs require, like leadership and um, communication skills and so forth, I don't think a robot would be able to replace that, or at least to understand that someone would have that skill set to replace it. Okay, so speaking about leadership, communication, those sorts of qualities, your course focuses on effectiveness of management of the individual. And will management of robots work in the same way or will we have to adapt practices? You know, I, 
I can't imagine that, and I've seen some of these robots um, that simulate human beings, and they don't have the emotional connection, you know, that humans have. So, mm -hmm. um, and that's a really emotional intelligence is a big um, aspect of of good leadership, right? You need to be able to connect with other people at both an interpersonal level. You have to show, uh, well, good leaders. You know, you you want to show empathy when um, when people have difficult. Um, any kind of difficulties in organizations. And so I don't think, um, I think those skills actually become even more, the interpersonal skills, the leadership skills, these emotional intelligence skills become that much more critical with the rise of artificial intelligence. Okay, yeah, so that's interesting. Um, in fact, I actually think that artificial intelligence makes, um, you know, it, it provides an opportunity for people to um, maybe focus less on the technical competencies and more on some of these interpersonal competencies that oftentimes, uh, you know, I, I have three boys and, you know, they're pretty much addicted to all of their electronics. <laughs> <laughs> and I often wonder, you know, what are they losing by only interacting with the screen um, a good chunk of the time? So it, it could foster, now it depends on the job, but it could foster the, the need and the desire and ability to, um, to make those human connections. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely really important. And speaking on the subject of courses and more in general about Northeastern, although mm -hmm. Northeastern may be doing all it can to help robot proof our generation, we can't ensure that everyone will follow soon enough to make the impact we need it to. Do you believe this leads to other moral implications if some people are getting the education and support that we need and others aren't? Um. I'm not sure I fully understand this question, but I'll I'll answer it in a way that I that that I think um, I think where you're going, but then you can just um, probe a little bit further. You know, I think one of the things that we're doing differently, although I assume that other schools are going in this direction as well, because of you know one of your other questions was about what about those who don't pursue higher education. Mm -hmm. I think what what artificial intelligence and and the rise of robots and so forth um, are doing is forcing our industry of higher education and a lot of other industries, but ours in particular, to really start to think differently about how we educate students. And, you know, in, in most universities, um, we're very siloed, right? We come up with different majors for people to choose um, and different career paths that are based on different mm -hmm. career paths, um, courses you can take that are based on that. Um, and, you know, that's one way to approach education, but I think with artificial intelligence, it allows you to be more creative with your approach to education, either by offering modularized education platforms, you know, so maybe you do, you take a couple courses, you know, over a couple of months and then you go work for a couple of months. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe you, it's not about earning a four-year degree. Maybe it takes a lot longer and it's, um, you know, like I said, a couple classes here and there, some work experience. But, you know, we have a whole range of, we, we have our, our, I mean, we're not, I wouldn't call it traditional because I think Northeastern is anything but traditional, which is one of the things I really appreciate about the university. Um, and I will just say as a sidebar, I love, and I'm not saying this just because it's our president writing a book on this, but one of the, I've been at the school for 10 years. And one of the things that I love is that we are such an old university, but yet we are so different from this. I grew up in Massachusetts where the school resides and it's a very different place from how I remember my sister went to she was a graduate, I don't know, almost 30 plus years ago. It was a very different place. And so somehow we've been able to reinvent ourselves. And it feels like a very innovative place, even though it's a very large 
universities, one of the largest private universities in the country, probably in the world. And but yet we feel so small and so innovative. So there's something about our culture that um, that breeds that. So I think it's what enables us to be very creative when we think about the impact, any impact that automation or anything else, because automation is just one piece of a bigger, um, I guess, pie of what's going on economically and socially and, um, and um, you know, globally around the, the world around us. There's a whole bunch of different shocks to a whole, you know, to industries. And so we're not immune to any of those. But I think so back to your question about being robot proof, you know, I think I think it's about being creative in terms of how we offer our education platform, not doing it, you know, kind of shaking up how things have been done in the past thinking about alternatives, uh, alternative avenues to education. Like I said, we have, you know, we have traditional programs, but, you know, ours are less traditional because kids go to school for a period of time and then they work for a period of time. But in addition to that, even at the graduate level and even for professionals or um, or individuals wanting to professionalize them themselves or gain a certain set of skills, we have boot camps and um, we're starting to offer badge programs, which are basically like modules of um, kind of like a certificate, but a smaller version of a certificate where you learn a specific skill set. And that's really geared toward, you know, a whole range of employees, um, potential employees or workers. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean it's for people in, you know, specific disciplines or who've had it, who have an advanced degree or even even a degree in general. It's really meant for anybody who wants to learn a particular skill set. Yeah, that's really, yeah, that's definitely very innovative. I think that the point on other universities and schools need to take this on in order for it to really make an impact, but it's great that we're at least starting somewhere. Yeah, and I will just say, I made a note of this when I was thinking about some of your questions. One of the things that's interesting about artificial intelligence is that it makes learning more accessible, right? So yeah, definitely. Um, in a lot of different ways, it makes it more accessible to a a wider range of individuals who may not necessarily have access to it. If you come from, you know, um, if you can't afford the ridiculous cost of an education, but it allows you to offer, um, the technology allows allows us to offer programs that are more affordable to people, um, accessible to people who may not, um, you know, who may be locationally challenged or physically challenged or whatever it is. Um, and, and it also provides a platform to be able to just learn new skills that um, you wouldn't necessarily be able to to learn if you were in kind of a standardized um, program or even professional career. So, you know, we use this term around campus a lot called intellectual agility. Mm-hmm. And I love that term because I think I think that's another skill. You know, you know I read all these reports of what employers want. And if you take the, the collection of all these interpersonal and uh, and kind of human skills that are really critical to being successful at the, I guess if you were going to, um, you know, package them all together, it really encompasses this concept of intellectual agility of being able to be, um, you know, flexible in how you think. And I think that that's the other thing about our education system that is very, I think, different from, I struggle with this a lot because I always, for years, have always taught my students you know, there's many ways to be successful. In a business school, you know, often you may think that the person that climbs the corporate ladder and makes it to the top of an organization as the CEO, you know, in a very linear sort of fashion, climbs, you know, from promotion to promotion, is the epitome of success. But 
the reality is, is there's many different ways to be successful. And that opens the door for, so it, for me personally, you know, I'm a mother, a single mother of three children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had a long career and I plan to continue that career, but that's, it's a big challenge for other people that are in my situation. You know, I'm lucky because I have, you know, a supportive workplace and um, other support structures around me, but not everybody has that. And so to be able to, I guess, kind of realize that there's many different ways to be successful and many approaches to getting there and to kind of let go of that success is solely defined by any one profession or any one organization that it's more self-defined, um, you know, I guess is another, another aspect of, um, intellectual agility and, um, and having that mindset that you can kind of do a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. So if despite all of these measures to sort of make us, um, to, with intellectual agility and that sort of thing, Robots are programmed with algorithms to help them calculate things faster than we ever could. Do you believe they'll eventually outsmart us? And if so, how can we prevent that? Well, like I said, I think the benefits of artificial intelligence are the speed, the ability to be less biased. Like you said, um, certainly they can be a lot more accurate than us. Um, But I think that that point about intellectual agility, I'm not sure that they they can achieve that. You know, um, intellectual agility means being able to apply a set of skills that you have to a variety of different um, problems or um, or issues or um, settings or whatever it may be. And, and oftentimes artificial intelligence is programmed to, I mean, you can get good at something um, over time, but it's usually in one area. And humans are more likely to have the ability to, to multitask and use that intellectual ability. And maybe really what it is, is at the end of the day, it's really about being, is about creativity. And I don't know how much, um, you know, robots can be creative. They certainly learn things over time and they can predict patterns and so forth, but can they, they can't really, you know, we often say one of the key issues of being an effective or key, um, differences between, you know, maybe a leader and uh, how a leader stands out over other people is the ability to kind of make connections and think outside the box. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think robots are programmed to stay within the box (laughs) because they're constantly looking for these patterns and commonality. Um, whereas humans are more equipped to see beyond that with that creative element. So, um, so I think, like I said, when I, I think one of the first things I said was, you know, um, this combination of the two is, to me, the perfect, um, you know, complementary skill set to have that, to have the robot doing the technical skills and allowing the humans to, to do the more important work of being creative and um, coming up with new ideas. And uh, I guess it's kind of like having an entrepreneurial mindset, you know, being, being, being more creative because oftentimes in our jobs we're bogged down with the mundane tasks so let's let robots do that and we can get on to the more important stuff (laughs) yeah definitely so you know they can take some of our some of our tasks but not the whole but not all the creative things that is what we do best yes yes 
Okay. So, um, although we can't provide students with all the resources in the world, are they willing and wanting to embark on a journey to keep them in jobs that robots can't replace or teach them about these skills that robots can't replicate? Or is there hesitance? And are they actually worried about jobs being taken over? Or is that too far in the future for them to think about? You know, I don't, I don't really know. I, I was hoping I'd get an answer from someone I know that's... Um, Old, more older in my my age range in in um, in the mid to late forties, but someone that's pretty senior in a financial services firm. And I, I wonder if there are certain occupations that I could see occupations such as um, you know anyone working in the financial services industry, where some of those where artificial intelligence may more likely be um, able to replace because those patterns are what's important. You need to look at past data to mm-hmm. predict future data. Now, it doesn't mean you don't need that creativity. Um, I don't see a lot of concern among my students, but it might be that um, that they have that intellectual agility and that mindset. I think that many of our students, and probably this is this is an assumption of most millennials, but I think most millennials are, are in this mindset that um, nothing is long-term. <laughs> and change is good. And, you know, people in my generation are probably a little bit more afraid of change um, for various reasons. So, so I think, you know, if anything, they see it as an opportunity. You know, what does this mean for me? What, what can I do differently or what can I do to support this trend? Um, one thing, and this is touting Northeastern a little bit, but, you know, I'm, I, I can, I'm a little biased since I've been there for, <laughs> for 10 years and um, have enough experience with students to to believe that this is true is that our students, because they have so many different experiential um, experiences while they're in, you know, while they're in college, um, you know, by doing small, um, I wouldn't say small, longer work assignments through our cooperative Mm -hmm. education or by studying abroad and really expanding their horizon during the time. That's part of the education. It's not just being in class. I'd say it's probably less about being in a traditional classroom situation and more about that experiential learning mm-hmm. that I think that they just have, I don't know, a different, a different outlook on, <laughs> on how they see the world and are mm-hmm. sort of expecting that, um, they're going to just be part of the change as opposed to, um, you know, I guess a force against the change. Yeah. I don't know if, if that makes sense, but they, so I guess, and also as it relates to some of the things that I teach, I mean, just last night in my, I teach a graduate course, um, and we spent half of the class, it was all about interpersonal communications, but we spent that half of the class talking about how to listen better. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it sounds kind of silly that I'm teaching that, uh, uh, you know, one, I mean, one, I guess it's one thirteenth of my class. It's not that much of it, but, uh, you know, a whole class on how to listen better, but those are the skills that are going to set, um, you know, our students, our graduates apart from the ones that are focused maybe a little bit too much on the technology side. And not to say that developing the technology is an important skill set too, but, um, you know, as, as you said, the, the robots might be able to do that on their own um, over time. And it's the, the, you know, kind of interpersonal and human skills that um, end up being that much more important. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It really is appreciated. And it means, no problem. Yeah. So let me ask you, I have to ask this. Are you, are you, I know you're not probably, you're 16. Yeah. 
Well, you're <laughs> very impressed by you as a, oh, thank a you. world. Are you, where are you thinking about colleges? I hope you'll consider Northeastern. <laughs> oh, definitely love to go somewhere like that. And that was Jamie Latch with some really interesting views on the social side of the impact of AI. Next up, Ernest Spicer. Okay, so one argument for AI taking over jobs is the increased efficiency and reliability. Do you think this is a fair analysis? Will we become too dependent on these technologies and will they fail us? And do you believe this to outweigh the millions of people who will become unemployed? Okay, it's a fair analysis and a very narrow view, in my opinion. There are several sectors that won't be touched for years effectively, the majority being in sales. All right, there's never going to be a 100% trust dependency when there's a human interaction necessary. And this will bring a vast shift in the workforce from manual labor over to sales and technology. Now, we're going to effectively be forcing our species to progress or fall behind. The upside is that we're going to advance cleaner energy and manufacturing production to protect our natural environment for a little bit longer. Downside, there's always going to be people left behind with any technological revolution. Luckily, most of the data development community, AI creators, are more selfless than monetarily driven. So all of us are going to work together to help people adapt. And Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. So um, another argument that some say is that robots are going to replace workers and they also deserve workers' rights and should pay taxes. Uh, what do you think of this? Robots get no rights. All right, they're not human, they don't deserve rights, and companies that are trying to fight for those rights, are they're just greedy. So I say if those robots have an income, then the company has to pay towards taxes and charity in, in whatever local area they're in. If a company replaces someone in a greedy effort without remorse, then I think they should pay at least 60% of the wages that they just replaced in, in human. So however much the tech costs, it'll save them money eventually on that 40% cut, but still, they need to pay. Yeah, that sounds like an interesting solution. And another ethical dilemma is that jobs that robots are likely to take over are predictable jobs in controlled environments. And these are traditionally carried out by lower class social classes. And is this, do you think this is morally correct to replace their jobs when perhaps they don't have the funding or time to retrain? In a sense, yes, it is moral. All right, the lower classes are having their manual labor replaced in today's age. It has nothing to do with funding or advancements in education. There are several universities who give away this knowledge via web interface. There does need to be a heavier interaction with those employees to introduce these resources. It just requires the right group of people to initiate the educational effort. We're facing an ethical dilemma if those right people don't act, though. Yeah, that's true. And so talking about uh, the all the opportunities that tech has to bring, what do you believe is the most valuable resource that ro robots and artificial intelligence can bring to us? And is there anything that we should be fearing? Uh, okay, yeah. Ad well, let's talk about the first resource. The biggest resource is adaptation. It's learning. It's constantly evolving that data and having that data compared and having sentiment added to it, having all kinds of things added to it. And the data is just, it's evolving itself now. There's AI making AI. Um, as far as things to fear, yes, there are a lot of things that we have to fear. I've, I've seen some people on social media advertise a violent use case or two that did scare me. And I won't repeat it because I don't want anybody else to know what it is. But there, there definitely does need to be 
some fear and definitely a lot more regulation as this new technology advances. Yeah, that's something definitely to consider going forward. So also you mentioned in your original Facebook comments that the best companies are equipping their workers with advanced tools. And what about those companies who can't afford or haven't yet adapted to or designed such tools? Will they fall behind and go bust? Or do you believe they'll be able to maintain market power just through human work? If a company doesn't have the technological ability to build and progress an AI use case for their business, then they shouldn't be trying to get into the field. It's not expensive to build framework and libraries. They won't go bust. They just, they'll, they'll stick to what they're good at and make them viable in the first place. It'll be a few years before AI takes over every aspect of technology. There are going to be refusals of certain masses to stay in the old way. That's how it is with any, any type of new technology, any type of new media, anything like that. There's always going to be people that don't want to progress with everybody else. Their market power won't change. They, uh, you know, they, they won't be able to increase their market power, though, until their data and tech teams catch up to their competitors in the AI, the ones that are actually making, you know, the, the advancements and, and really using that data to advance their companies. That's interesting. Um, thinking ahead to the future, will we ever reach a point where we can no longer outsmart robots with our thinking? And will AI reach the point where it learns to affect where it learns to effectively we are no longer needed and what will we do then all right robots will never have passion they'll never have love as humans those are our essences of power over the technological domain machines will never have the inner spirit drive and selflessness or the will to become stronger to save a life even by sacrificing our own we will always have creators to find some sort of -of out-of-the-box solution to whatever may come We have built AI to be a box. Even though it's a complex box, it's still a box, and it has its limitations for a little while. So that's good. We can still hold our jobs in a few years' time. And AI can have fundamentally life-changing effects in in sectors such as the health sector. However, make one mistake, and it could lead to a catastrophe. And how would you avoid the slim chance of failure? And what are the moral dilemmas if someone dies at the hand of the computer? Who's to blame? All right. Healthcare data won't evolve to a dependency for a few years at least. There's a huge margin for error in it right now. Our company deals with this directly. We are still evaluating creative solutions to this dilemma, but you won't hear anything in AI and healthcare be more than suggested or not for clinical use for a couple of years at least. And as far as who's to blame, the person to blame is the doctor that gave total mm-hmm. dependency with no fail-safe to a machine. Whoever signs that patient's record as the physician and just walks away, that's the person to blame. This needs to be a human-to-human interaction. Yeah, okay, that's an interesting solution. I hadn't thought of that. And doctors are one of the professions where you require to train for such a long period of time before you can embark on a career. Do you believe robots will make a positive impact by reducing time needed to train before becoming a doctor as they complete tasks for you? or a negative impact as they replace jobs and reduce wages, making it even harder to pay back student debts. All right, hopefully we don't touch the system of physician education and, and healthcare education for a few years. The amount of time in research and education, in my opinion, is a necessity. Healthcare is a person-to-person service exchange. This should not be tampered with. 
possibly aided by AI and technology as far as the education process, you know, what learning methods may work and what learning methods make things easier, but definitely don't, don't replace that, that, that educator and, and educated relationship. There, there's a lot of passion being transferred down over those so many years, a lot of inspiration being passed down. And I don't, think computers will ever be able to do it like that. It takes a human to inspire a human in order to help a human, especially when it comes to learning for several years on end, grinding out that data. Wow, I'm really glad to know that I'll be safe in the hands of my doctors. And uh, thank you so much, Ernest, for answering your questions. It was super nice of you to come on and talk to us. Absolutely. Glad I could help. Thank you, Ernest, for that insight into the role of robots and employers. Finally, here's Hesse Jones. Just a quick warning, our connection broke up a couple of times, so her responses are a little jumpy in places. Thank That's, you for having me. Oh, no, thank you for coming on. That's a really interesting biography about what you do and really relevant to what we're talking about. So um, in the article that you sent me, it speaks about how AI a couple of decades ago was considered futuristic. And some consider the automization of jobs to be something way off in the future. Do you agree or do you believe that this is the same effect with AI as with AI? And if so, how soon is the AI revolution from occurring? Well, I, I look at uh, everything as progress and it's sort of a revolution when, when machines started coming about. And if you remember people, farmer actually sitting on, you know, uh, tractors yeah. and trucks, etc. to And like all that stuff made it easier for farmers to, to actually, you know, spend time with their family, etc. right? And it, it did take away jobs. It did take away people actually, you know, um, working in the fields and, and doing a lot of that manual labor. But it also, in a way, made people, um, it gave people opportunities because, those kinds of advancements also drove um, uh, people to drove, I guess, the creation of new opportunities. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. So that maybe we so will lose jobs, but worth it. They'll give other opportunities. That's right. It's the same. Exactly. And you think about that today and even, let's say, 10 10 over 10 15 years ago when digital was was brand new there was no such thing as user experience there was no such thing as a social media manager um you know those kinds of fields have kind of been developed as a result of as a result of the digitization of media the internet like explosion into all these industries and even programmatic buying and in, in advertising is huge so AI is going to do the same thing because, yes, there are going to be jobs, especially repeatable processes, um, that, that will be eliminated. But the idea is that, and what we believe, um, especially at Humans for AI, is that um, those new opportunities need to actually uh, be created by people who know the domain. And so as you... As you as your job evolves, there are things that you probably want AI to take over because it's a pain in the butt to be able to do this stuff every single day without using my brain. Mm -hmm. Those are the, the kinds of repeatable processes you probably want, but at the same time, 
you you yourself could see um, evolution in some solutions that, that AI can help uh, with respect to your industry and with respect to your function. Sure, interesting. So also in the article, it's mentioned that by controlling AI through domain experts, which is a fabulous idea for solving the growing concern of robots outsmarting us. And could you explain the idea more and how you believe we can achieve the knowledge for expertise? Right. Okay, so I've worked in an AI company where, uh, you know, you try to solve a problem. For example, we were we worked with banks. And so in banking, there is a way to approve a loan. And there's an automated approval, uh, process to approve a loan. But what happens is that if that doesn't work, and let's say somebody comes in and says, I want to apply for a loan, but they don't have the same information as they do for another person, mm -hmm. they will have to take that application and kick it out to a manual process. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole slew, I think, 50% of applications that, that go to a bank, loan applications, actually get kicked out to a manual process. Mm -hmm. And so it's contingent upon that individual who's actually doing it to find whatever information that they can to give them information that will allow them to approve um, the loan at a better, I, I guess, uh, with more confidence. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about that process, then then you need somebody who's been in that role for a long time to kind of sit beside a data scientist and say, this is how I do my work. So you need input from not only their expertise and experience, but also in the process and when that actually happens. Because what the data scientist will do is it will take the process, it will take their expertise, but it will also take all the data that comes in to be able to determine whether or not they can kind of mimic it and, mm -hmm. and improve the process so that they minimize the amount of manual stuff coming through. Um, and so if you think about artificial intelligence, the whole idea is to mimic the intelligence of the human brain, how the brain processes information, um, how they make decisions, um, how they perceive things. And by taking all this into consideration, you definitely need a data scientist working with a domain expert to be able to do this. So part of it is training the uh, domain expert on what AI is and how it could help them, but using the knowledge of the do domain expert, feed that back to the data science so they can, to, to us, co-create together solutions that will be more beneficial for the industry. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. That's that you combine sort of the people who have the sort of human knowledge with those who have the knowledge of what the AI is going to do. Yeah, okay, that's a really good idea, actually. So, um, Humans for AI believes that by empowering women and minorities, they can bridge the gap in the current workforce by seizing opportunities to fill this growing workspace. And right. do you think this might lead to a bias in the system they're developing, or will we be underskilled? And will enough minorities step forward to fill these roles? So we take a look at this from the perspective of um, what models exist today, so where. We're trying to determine whether or not a criminal has the ability to, let's say, uh, to to actually, um, let's say, be a criminal again, right? Mm -hmm. If if they're in an institution and they they they're in prison for like two or three years, will they go out into the world and be a good citizen or not? So it increases. We they determine the probability of somebody doing that. With racy divism, 
what they had done what in the past was actually take a look at, let's say, psychologists. Psychologists, um, when a judge was sentencing an individual, would say, no, that, that guy is going to do this again. They realized was that there was a certain bias from the psychologist because in most cases, these people were black. Mm -hmm. And, and so what they had done, they said, you know, we got to take this out of the the sentencing and make sure that it's more fair. Mm -hmm. So they started doing studies. They started uh, doing focus groups among prisoners to ask them certain things about, you know, uh, what they did in the past, like where they lived, um, whether or not they're uh, there, there are people within their family that, that did those things, their education level, etc. So um, those models have been perpetuated for years. The unfortunate thing is that when you think of, let's say, a police officer, a police officer stopping a car, more often than not, that in, in the States, what they found was that a lot of those people were either Black or Latino. So 90% of the time, nothing would happen because they were innocent. But the fact that they were stopped mm -hmm. by police was flagged as a trait to say, if you're a flag, then, then that increases the probability that you can offend again. And so by virtue of just being stopped, your name was already biased oh, in the system. And so by taking out the race uh, card, then... Um, these are the types of models that need to be fixed. And what we believe is that, like in the past, a lot of the models that were built were, were done by a homogeneous group. And so, intentional or not, there are still biases. The same thing today, like birthday mm -hmm. is a form of bias. It's almost like, will somebody give you a job? More likely, if you're younger, and then, then if you're older. So there's this thing called ageism that's up there. Um, also, postal code. Postal code is a big consideration for income. Where you live determines the probability of you actually, uh, of your education, of how wealthy you are, of your ethnic background. So, so that is also a form of bias. And so what we're saying is that by allowing diverse opinion, so we're not we're not only talking about minorities, we're talking about diverse opinion from people of different walks of life, from different geographies, from different opinion to be able to input into the model. What you're doing is you're getting you're getting diverse opinion to be able to, to create something that's not homogeneous, that is actually closer to being unbiased okay that's really interesting so you want to get a bit of everyone to sort of bring it that's all together right. to create an unbiased as opposed to a bias okay that's and, and i think part of the reason that we're doing this as well is we think about technology we still have this problem in tech where there is lack of diversity um, most men uh White men are, are still at, at the top. They're the leaders. They have more representation. And less women have less representation um, also in leadership as well as some of those roles. And then you have the fact that uh, blacks and Hispanics also have very, very poor representation in technology. And those that, that let's say, in Chinese or Indian uh, heritage, 
may not necessarily be in leadership positions, but they they may compound the uh, the engineering and the, mm-hmm. the subservient roles within that function. So we need, and, and if AI is going to take over like the industrial revolution did, you want to make sure that there it's going to be equitable for all, right? And yeah. so that means that you need representation in the code as well as in the positions um, to be able to, to make that happen. Yeah, definitely. While some people are naturally born with a passion for computing or data or AI, others prefer to avoid it. And how can we embrace them in the revolution? I think, so there is this, I think what's going to happen is, uh, first of all, not everybody can become a data scientist. Not everybody can. Like, I'm actually trying, I'm learning uh, R and Python, which are some of the programming algorithms for, for AI right now. It doesn't come easy to me, and I might end up giving it up because I'm not predisposed as a data scientist to, to understand that stuff. Now, I've taken statistics in quantitative analysis in my past, and I'm not that young anymore. But I understand it at a basic level. But will I use it? And will I become a programmer? Probably not. There are people that are doing it because they're afraid that their job will be replaced. And so they're trying to do as much as they can to, to, to kind of transition to a new role. I don't think that I don't think that will happen. I think if you are predisposed to a certain thing, you need to stay at least within that vertical. So yes, there there are people who are great analysts. There are great people who are who um, are great philosophers. There are people who are great artists. But you cannot take an artist and make him a mathematician. Same thing as a, a mathematician. If he does not know how to pick up a paintbrush, why would you let him try? But when we talk about AI and and we talk about building for humanity's future, it's it's taking those those domain experts like and it's like if you want to teach ai how to do a great painting why not talk to an artist and help the artist evolve what ai could do for them as opposed to just replace it it's the same thing with music as much as ai can probably create music and can do it to a relatively okay degree We don't want to throw creativity out the door. Uh, We want to be able to allow people mechanisms to to create a lot more with technology and with without technology, right? So um, from that perspective, that's when we talk about new areas of opportunities that will that will take place. And I think what's going to also happen is that as we increase the mechanization. In society, we'll need a lot more humanity because people will, that we have an aging population of boomers that are happening, um, all around the world. So you'll need a lot more caregivers mm-hmm. that will, that will, um, be, I guess the, um, the, the bridge between the machine and, 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 you know, those people that that are in hospitals and in hospices, etc. So, uh, an increased level of humanity won't will okay. Prevail. Yeah. Uh, similarly, AI is feared by a lot of people. So, how do you plan to combat that stigma? Through education. Uh, this is this is the reality. I think we're at a breaking point right now. I, I wouldn't say breaking point. Maybe it, it's more of a threshold where. 
companies, people, individuals are scared of it because they don't know enough. And with companies, they, their fear is that they, they, they know they need to do, they don't know how to do it. Um, they've embedded, it's, it's almost like you bought a house, you equipped it with all your favorite furniture and, and your toys and everything in it. And suddenly this thing comes along that demolishes your house. Now you've got to reconfigure it and, and, and you have to start start from scratch. That's the real fear that a lot of mm-hmm. companies have is that they have to start from scratch. And if you remember, like a lot of the people that are at the top are, are executives, senior executives that have been there for years. And they're the, the older you get, the less likely you want to learn more. They don't want to turn their jobs upside down. They want to take their experience and build something that they know is going to work. But if they don't know enough about AI, that there's a, there's a huge risk there. So you not only have to train corporate executives, you have to allow them to, to learn and embrace it and apply it within the organization. Okay. Humans for AI is doing. We want to train people. Um, we want to train them at a level that they can understand because uh, a, a technical audience is easy to understand programming language. But if you can understand it from a non-technical perspective, then you can mm-hmm. apply it in, in ways that will help you in your organization. Sure. Okay. So uh, do you believe the robot revolution is largely beneficial to us or are there significant drawbacks? And do you believe this will be a fast healing pain or leave a further divide in the future? Uh, the robot generation, I guess it all depends because there's there, there are um, automated systems right now that I think will work. I think from a manufacturing perspective, I, I think it's a, it's a great thing. Um, it will increase, it, it, it's already happening within the uh, automotive sector. What's scary is, is the automation of, let's say, um, technology for war mm-hmm. and drones, especially like anything like that, that, that takes humans out of the equation and lets essentially a computer or robot decide uh, when or, or when it, it's right to kill or harm an individual, that's what's really scary. We should never, at least in our lifetime, be a let a machine be allowed to make those decisions. I think for the most part, I think right now we have to be in control over the decision making and use the information that comes out of machines to be able to make that final decision and not let them do it. Okay, that's interesting. So instead of putting it all in their hands, we get the information, then we still are the ones at the, at the decision end. Right. Okay. I think the, the important point here is that sometimes when a machine learns, it may learn in a black box. It means that it, it's processing millions and millions of information at, at one point that you don't know why they made the decision that they did because it's happening at such a mm-hmm. high rate. So if you, if they give you an insight, then use that insight to figure out how, why it was, why it was done. And that's why there, there are technologies out there that says we need an audit trail. We need to use blockchain to understand, um, you know, how decisions are made. Um, and then let the human decide whether or not it's proper. They, they have the discretion. They have the experience. And, and they have the, the know-how and, and they, they could, you know, at, at the same time, the, the information will be made faster mm-hmm. and give it to them. 
And so they can use that information and consult with the people that know better to be able to make something, a decision that, that will benefit their organization or, you know, government negotiations. Yeah. Okay. That's a really, that's a really positive way of looking at it. And so the final question is the jobs that robots are likely to take over, as mentioned in the sort of the beginning of the podcast, the abstract is that predictable jobs are complete predictable jobs and controlled environments are most likely to be taken over. And these jobs are traditionally carried out by lower social classes. So is this morally correct to replace their jobs when perhaps they don't have the funding or time to retrain? And are we facing an ethical dilemma? There are, there's always going to be, I think to some degree, um, things will evolve. I, I believe, I believe, if, if, if you think about it from the perspective of, of the analogy that I used in the beginning, manufacturing, mm-hmm. we talked about, you know, the mechanization of, let's say, farming tools. And then, and then you have secretaries. Secretaries never existed until probably what in the forties, fifties. That job became became a lot more personalized. Yes, there are um, technologies out there today that ha- that are personal assistants, and they'll get better over time. It doesn't necessarily mean, but the idea of personalization and, like I said, high human touch doesn't stop somebody like that from retraining to do something else and and they can it can be applied to other industries yes there are professions that are let's say that work in inventory that may work in in manufacturing that will be highly roboticized um we know that technology is already taking over the automotive industry where where to, to be a linesman in, in putting a car together, you need far fewer people to do it. And, and I think from my understanding now that in a given line, when a car comes through, a lot of that process is already roboticized mm-hmm. and they may have, um, two or three humans for quality assurance down mm-hmm. the line where before you probably had a hundred. There will need to be some massive retraining. There needs to be that because what's going to happen is that if, if AI takes over and humans, for the large part, don't have jobs, then who's going to buy stuff? Mm-hmm. How is the economy going to churn? So they can't, they need humans to actually buy foods in order to get the economy going. Like mm-hmm. that's, and so what's the point of investing in AI to make things better, cheaper, or whatever? If you don't have anybody yeah. to consume the information. So it's absolutely, it's, it's not a universal in, basic income, uh, solution. Okay. Yeah. So instead of, so we still need to find other jobs for them. We can't just remove them from jobs and okay. Yeah. Right. So that will be created. They, they, they will be. I think I, we don't know. Okay. We don't, as of like two years ago, there was no such thing as a machine learning engineer. <laughs> now there is. And so as, and then now business, um, analysts are starting to change their roles into, into machine learning data scientists, but everybody's a data scientist. And, and until, until that evolves into what does that mean in terms of maybe a product manager, a product manager that doesn't have to be a data scientist that doesn't have to know engineering, 
but can absolutely know their domain expertise in a specific vertical. Oh, thank you so much. Those are really interesting answers. I've learned actually so much about all the different questions that I thought I already knew, but apparently I didn't. So thank you so much for your time. It was really appreciated. No problem. I, I learn a lot every day. And on that fabulous note, thank you so much for joining us here today for this one-off podcast. I hope, just like myself, you learned a lot from it. All the articles, comments and posts mentioned in the interviews will be linked in the podcast description. If you found this podcast interesting, don't forget to share it with friends, family, work and social media. Special thanks to Jamie Lodge and Northeastern University, Ernest Spicer and Advanced Nutrition Consulting and Hesse Jones and Humans for AI. It's been a pleasure speaking with them all. My name is Joanna Baptista and until next time.